Ben. Fraser. In the next episode of the podcast, we've got a, another celebrity joining us. Very, well, broadcasting legend. Broadcasting legend, yeah. OBE, I read this morning as well. Um, today on the podcast, we are joined by none other than Eamon Holmes. Eamon, thank you for joining us. Not at all. Cult have often been described as. Cult? I, I think it was cult. I think that's what they said. <laughs> but yes, that's very, very kind. Very kind of you to, to say that. So we're just fresh off our educational awards. Correct. Yes. Yeah, we first Did they met. go down well? Very. Yeah. Very, very well received. Um, I was telling the team this morning, we had a company update this morning, <clears throat> and I said, I think there was 270-odd people in the room, and I probably knew 10% going into it, and been quite overwhelmed, really, by the support and feedback on the night, but then subsequently through Fraser and Louise and, and, and emails that have come in, and from people that, you know, that we, we don't know. And, and we definitely realised the following week that Milton Keynes needed that. And um, it's on to bigger and better things now. And you obviously played an important role. And some of the feedback very much was commented on how you interviewed and engaged with the winners when they came up. Well, I felt very humbled by the whole thing because we all do what we do in our in our worlds. And there were people there for no gain or profit, quite a lot of them, people who were dealing with uh, students with special needs, for instance, and just investing their lives in making their communities and making their schools and making their pupils better people. And I just thought that was really humbling. That That is real vocation. Yeah. And it was, it was great to see. The interaction side with, it's what most people commented on, but the interaction side of... I suppose it's the journalist in you. The questions that you were asking the winners were brilliant, and we didn't give you those. That was mm. you taking it upon yourself and doing it. And it was the, the feedback from the crowd being able to listen to them and to you was, was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. There was an intimacy. There was a nice size, as you said, 270 people. Often you go to events and there's a 1,000 people, whatever. No one, everybody's drinking and talking and no one's listening, really. But you got a sense that people were invested in the nominees and the prize winners at the at the end but I, I really enjoyed it and I really enjoyed getting to to meet people and hear what they actually do for a living it's good and in a few weeks we'll be replicating that for Northamptonshire indeed yeah 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 I look forward to that yeah and one of the things that you um that stood out from speaking to you at the MK Awards was you knew what you wanted to do in life from an early age yeah I was very blessed I was very lucky um, I, I do find it difficult when I say to young people, you know, so what do you want to be or what do you want to do? Well, I don't know. I mean, there could be 22 or 23 and you're asking them that question. And I'm thinking, well, it's about time you find out. I do think life is easier for you if you know what your path is going to be. Now, it mightn't end up, you mightn't end up going down that road, but it does make matters um, somewhat easier in directionalizing what, what is going on. So for me... Um, I was a child of the Troubles. I was eight years of age when the Troubles broke out, and that, you know, really shapes your life from there on in. And I knew that not only was I affected by them personally, but I had this mission that I would look and I would see what was going on, and I wanted to explain to the rest of the world. I wanted to say to people in Northampton and Milton Keynes and whatever, um, look, we're not all like this. We don't want to kill soldiers and and each other and and whatever and i wasn't sure why it was happening so i had this mission to explain this and also you were influenced by seeing 
reporters. It wasn't 24-hour news territory. It was people who were filming one day for transmission the next day. Mm -hmm. But then you would see the Jeremy Paxmans and the Nicholas Witchells uh, on the street corners talking about the riots and whatever. And it was quite, in truth, it, it also was it was very exciting. It was quite, quite, if I could use the term glamorous with a small g, um, sort of profession. It wasn't, there was nothing mundane about mm -hmm. it. So there was an attraction uh, for me from that point of view. However, I may well have wanted to be a journalist and a broadcast journalist in particular, but believe me, no one else believed you could be or you should be. You know, my father was a carpet fitter. My mother was a housewife. You know, my brothers are postman, painter, and decorator, carpet fitter. You know, so there was no expectation that I could be anything different or should be anything different. And that was difficult. Even at school, it was like, you know, you would, you would, you would go to university and you would be a lawyer, you'd be a doctor or whatever. But the journalist word didn't really crop up there um, much at all. So there was no careers advice into wanting to do it. And um, and so really, I was on I was on my own because there was nobody in the family that ever did it. Do you, do you think if there if it wasn't for the the troubles, yeah? Do you think you because obviously at eight, you know, <clears throat> I can't imagine what it would have been like going through that at such a young age. But do you think that's almost what led you to want to become a a, a journalist and broadcaster? Oh, definitely. And if that hadn't have been there, there would have been less direction. Yes, mm. I agree. I would have been a carpet fitter like my dad was probably. The reason I'm not a carpet fitter is that I was so bad at it. You know, my dad used to bring us out as kids, and I just realised, no, this is too much like hard work. I can't, I can't do this. And um, you know, so that that got me focused. I was very um, ours was not an academic household, but it we were able. I was able for some reason to use the television to to educate myself and watch panoramas and horizons and world in actions and uh, various programs. I mean, people say. You know, television's just chewing gum for the brain. But there's lots of substantial stuff out there. It's finding it and knowing how to use it. And I find educationally, uh, while I was at school, it would help with my history projects. It would mm. help with um, English English literature. I mean, what, what, you know, I could watch a Shakespeare play on television and then read the text and I would find that would help me to understand it yeah. more. Whereas if I had have read the text on its own... It wouldn't have the same effect. No, it yeah. wouldn't have had the same effect. So <clears throat> for some reason, I sort of was able to decode that side of it in terms of, uh, of education. Um, and people see it differently. A lot of people just think TV's rubbish and don't, don't be bothered. I don't, I don't agree with that at all. But I, um, I wanted to be a journalist, and um, I, w I went to be a journalist. I was accepted for uh, the training college, and uh, there was 200 people for 20 places. And I got the place, and I said to my mum, Mum, I'm going to be a journalist. I'm going to train to be a journalist. And she said, no, you're not. You're going to go out and get a job. I need a wage coming into this house. And uh, so respectful was I, I suppose, when I look back at it now, a lot of people may just have had their own mind, but I actually did what my mother told me. And um, I, she said, you go out and you'll get a good job. And I went out and I applied for a job as a trainee manager with Primark. And Primarche, I, as my wife calls it. Indeed, <laughs> Primarche. And uh, unfortunately, I got it. And I say unfortunately, 
in that it was a tough gig. Retail is a tough gig, really tough. Filling in figures, using floor space, uh, responsible for other staff. There was no glamour there. You had to empty the delivery lorries in your three-piece suit to then put it back on again. And, you know, there was, there was absolutely no glamour. The hours were long. You were on your feet constantly. Um, so anyway, after a year of that, I thought, stuff this for a game of soldiers. I'm going to um, apply for that journalism course again. Amazingly, I got it. I had to face a lot of questioning why I didn't accept the job first year, first time round. I bluffed my way through that, got the job. I said to my mum, I'll work in a bar seven nights a week. You can have the money, I don't care, but I'm going to be a journalist. And I got a grant, my, my course was grant aided. And I, I got that and I was, I ended up, I think because I had to do a real job, first of all, yeah. it made me more determined to get through. And I was the student of the year. Oh. And I got um, I got a hundred pound prize uh, check uh, from Esso Petrol for being that, <laughs> and um, it it made it really did make me think if you don't do well at this, you'll be back out there really working. And I never really did see journalism as work as such because there is that saying that if you do something yeah. you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Correct. And like, okay, it's tough, it's rough, and nothing ever prepared me for the public eye. But um, it's 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 of course it's tough, but it's not really like real work. There's a message in there because I think I um, when I was at school, I didn't know what I wanted to be. I don't, still don't today, if I'm honest. But I can tell you, yeah, um, I ended up in retail. I did. Yeah, you did, didn't you? Yeah, two, three, four years in retail just sort of bumbling along and they were long hours they mm. were awkward hours christmas everything like that and you'd stand there and you'd go i wish i paid attention at school i wish yeah. i did something else i wish i got a trade i wish i'd done something else because it is it's a it's an eye-opener but touching on what you were saying about the, the the troubles and going into journalism we've we've spoke about it before that we're firm believers that everything happens for a reason that <clears throat> not saying the troubles happen for a reason, but that was the catalyst into your career. Mm -hmm. And also your mum saying, no, go and get a proper job. That was the second one to say, no, this is definitely, that's my passion. That's where I'm going. Yeah. So sure. uh, Yeah, showed a lot of character. Yeah, character and commitment on it. When, when you look at your resume, your CV, your career, it's, it, I mean, it's very impressive. Worked with some amazing uh, broadcasters and shows but you've interviewed a lot of special people who who's the standout person or people that you've you've had the pleasure of interviewing Ooh, that ranges because i've been blessed enough to have worked in sport and news and current affairs and entertainment and to see a lot of people but i remember the first time you know, I'm not a political person. I, I treat all politicians with the same sort of cynicism, but, you know, I can recognize when I was, you know, and I met Tony Blair and, and uh, subsequently had to interview him quite a lot. I could tell he was different. I could tell he had charisma. And then you could tell other politicians that had charisma. Bill Clinton, absolutely, you know, amazing, magnetic personality. Um, but Hillary Clinton, fascinated me to be able to interview her and very smart individual 
Very, very smart. But I remember Glenda Jackson, the the art, the the actor. Really, you know, early on in the early eighties, interviewing her in Belfast uh, and seeing her as an actress, but she was then entering into politics and realizing how smart she was and how much she had to tell. You don't have to agree with these people philosophically mm. or whatever, or politically, but you can actually tell that is something special. Um, so the, the, there were lots of people, but, but to be in the presence of genius, sometimes you're with someone you think that person is genius. And the person I would say is, was genius was Barry Humphreys, who was Diomedna Average. Oh. Absolute genius. And you could tell he could have turned his hand to anything. He could have talked about opera. He could have talked about politics. He could have talked about anything. But comedy, and that's what made Dame Edna so clever, that she can she could just demean anything that you were saying and break it down into its comical form. Very, very smart, Barry Humphreys. Very smart. And it was a pleasure to be around someone like him. Yeah. Who's the most challenging? Um, I tell you what's challenging. There, there is a group of people out there who are too cool for school. And I'm the sort of personality, especially as I get older, which I would be, do you know what? I really don't care. Do you want to do the interview? Or do you not want to do the interview? They don't want to be there. They act as if they're far superior. And usually that is music people. People who are artists as such, music artists, and they yeah. can't, you know, I remember, um, I remember once, well, I'll not name the actress because she's still alive and uh, uh, just too controversial to get involved in. But I remember I was to interview this actress who was uh, well known for a character. She played on screen, really well known character. And we got there and uh, to interview her, and it was, the interview was to last an hour long. It was a live program. And she decided, and it was a tribute to this character that she was playing, and she decided she didn't want to talk about the character. There's more to her than that character. But you're going, that's not why you're booked for your book to celebrate this character. <laughs> and they take themselves very, very seriously. A lot of actors and actresses will say, you know, I'm just making this up. James Bond, for instance, right? Yep. So you're known for James Bond, but I have played other characters. Yeah, I know, but can we talk about James Bond? I'm not just James Bond, I'm XX Man. And you get some actors who are like that, and they just don't even enter into it. Likewise, though, equally, I will say, there are actors, Joan Collins is an example, that everybody asks Joan Collins the same question. Oh, what was it like in Dynasty and those shoulder pads and whatever? Now, in fairness to Joan Collins, she was a Hollywood starlet, you know, mm -hmm. 16 or 17 years of age. She was a dancer. She sang as well. She starred with lots of, you know, all the big names, you yeah. know, uh, Gregory Peck, uh, you know, <clears throat> so, so, so many people she was with. And when I interview Dame Joan or Joanie, um, I'd say, do you know what I was watching yesterday? I was watching this film with you and Gregory Peck, Jewel in the Sun. And you're, oh, yes, Greg Peck, Greg Peck. I said, how old were you then? I was 17 then. Da, da, da. Now, she has done a lot in her life. But what she gets is 
you can tell she gets tested by people asking her the same thing all the time. So all you've got to do is not ask her the same thing and they will be appreciative of yeah. it. So I tend to give people respect and try and talk to them about things that others don't talk to them about or give them the respect that um, that they that you realise that you've read up on them and you appreciate the the breadth of their work. But music stars and actors, particularly American, can be a problem. And particularly American because they're surrounded by lots of PR people. Yeah. And um, I mean, I remember once that this... They take themselves very, very seriously. And, oh, so many of them. And this one, I can't remember her name. I don't remember her name. But anyway, she was, um, uh, she was, she was playing the part of a blind queen. She ruled over a kingdom for a Netflix series or whatever. And the wokeness of all of this was that because she was blind, she couldn't see the difference in any of her subjects. Oh, bore, bore, bore. But anyway, I noticed that she was standing with her PR people in the corner and there was this row going on with my production team. And I think, oh, what's this? We're on a commercial break. And I go over and say, what's the problem? What's the problem? Is everything okay? Um, and, said, well, no, it's not okay. I said, well, well what's, what's wrong? What can we put right? And... Um, the usual PR people do this and they go, excuse me, you want to talk to Miss So-and-so, you talk through me. And I'd say, I'm very sorry. I don't re didn't realize you were on the program. And they go, oh, I'm not on the program. I said, exactly, so piss off. <laughs> right, so then I talk to the, the star. And we're ticking down. We're nine minute and a half to on air. What is the problem? Well, I am... Um, I'm allergic to material. I can't sit on that couch over there. I said, but this show's been on the air for 30 years. Has no one told you that it was a couch? Meaning you, Mrs. PR, didn't yeah, do yeah. your job. So I said, look, right, so what is the problem? She said, well, I'm, I'm allergic to a number of things. I said, well, what are you not allergic to? Well, I'm not allergic to paper. I'm not allergic to linen. Ah, stop right there. Stop right there. Come with me. Now, look, feel this. Feel this. What do you think of this material? Well, it's very nice. What is it? It's linen. It's not only linen, it is Ulster linen spun in cyan mills in Northern Ireland. And why is it there? Because I have the same affliction as you. I am allergic to almost everything else except this wonderful linen that we have here. Look how fantastic it is. And she said, oh, yeah, it's really good. I said, feel it, touch it, sit. Just I sit down. Here we go. Back after the break. Da -da -da -da. We do the talk. We do get the interview. She talks about her boring program. And we off, off she goes at the end. And the production team come over to me and they say, I mean, these kids are in their 20s and they're being bullied by, the, by these Americans. And I, and they go, Oh my goodness, yeah, man, that was amazing. How did you know that was linen? I said, no idea what it is. I said, I don't know, I don't know what's linen. I, said, I just said it was linen. You know, has she broken out in a rash? Has she broken out in hives? No, so we're all done. It's all fine. But there is a tendency amongst um, people to prove that they're stars. That, in other words, if she can get the couch changed or she can yeah. get people dancing around us, it proves that she's important. It must be so frustrating. Well, it can be very frustrating. I remember Mariah Carey once. Um, I came into room. I'd been up from four o'clock in the morning. She was late for the interview. I went into the room, and there she was lying down on the couch, right? And I said, right, I said, well, we're ready to go when you are. And they went, oh, Miss Carey will be doing the interview lying down. And I said, oh, that's fine. That's great. There's no problem. 
So I walked over and I lay down beside her. <laughs> and her PR people went ballistic. What are you doing? What are you doing? And I said, why is she lying down? She said, she's tired. I said, she's tired. I said, I've been up from four o'clock this morning. We were supposed to do this interview at 10. It's now one o'clock in the afternoon. I said, so I said, forgive me if I claim that I'm tired as well. So I said, so here's how it's going to go. Either we both sit up or we both lie down. So I don't mind. Oh, well, Miss Carey's not getting up, not sitting. I said, well, then I'm not doing the interview. And I, I walked out and left her there. But, you know, she's a diva beyond. She's the and, biggest and the, diva. And the interview didn't happen? Didn't happen, no. Wow. No. So, uh, you've, I mean, you've listed there a couple of professional challenges, which I can only, oh, that would really gripe me. It's bad enough working with you. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, there's, there's <laughs> but, adapt and overcome. Yeah, 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 um, adapt and overcome. But what, what's what been the biggest challenge for you that you've had to deal with, or, or maybe multiple throughout your career? I think the biggest challenge I face is now, this stage of my life, my mobility. The workplace has changed um, in terms um, Black Lives Matter has had a, massive repercussion in our industry it means there's less jobs available um therefore i've had to adapt to that ageism ageism comes into play and it's very rife people who say i don't know what it's like in your industry but definitely it is there and it is there in society and you know if i was a uh, an architect or if i was a doctor i imagine people would defer to me and say, with your experience, Mr. Holmes, how would you handle this? In my business, it tends to be, well, what would you know? You know, what would you know? You know, it tends to be that. Because sort of, of your age. Because of your age. Yeah. I mean, and you actually think, well, look, I've never been smarter. I've never been more on top of my game or what, what I do. And I think that people don't, that don't show that respect or tap into that reservoir of, of knowledge. I don't, I don't really get that. But the biggest um, hurdle that I've had to um, experience has been mobility, my health now, where I've uh, damaged the discs in my back and they've damaged my legs and my balance and walking. And that's been, you know, for nearly two years, that has been, that has affected my life terribly. And it affects obviously the type of programs I've worked for you guys. And I had to sit on a stool behind a podium you accommodated me you know where there's a will there's a way yeah always and, and, and thank but you could have equally said no listen we want you standing we want you walking across the stage you know good to us so thank you for for doing that and and hopefully you thought that my performance was fine enough and it didn't matter whether i was standing or, or sitting by of course by doing it but that that has been the single biggest challenge and that continues to be the single biggest challenge so would, would it be fair to say that it's you mentioned that the workplace has changed in recent years and, and I'm going to come on in a minute and, and explain one part of that for us but do you think that's cost you work then in terms or in terms of opportunities oh, oh yes definitely yeah of course it does yeah <clears throat> so we're as you know when we spoke before we're we're 26 27 employees and we're we're all white and we've we've got a, a podcast coming up in a few weeks where we're going to be talking about inclusivity and diversity which many people actually just assume is race and gender, but actually it's a lot more than that, including disability. Um, but that's something that I'm very conscious of, that we're 26, 27 strong. We're actually female dominated because the majority of people in our team, in our company are female. But we don't have any 
um, people of colour, well, I don't even know if that's the right terminology now, and, th- and this is what I think is for small businesses and growing businesses yes, yeah. is really difficult because we don't know the right phrases to, not phrases, we don't know the right word in the vocabulary. Terminology. A big thing on yeah. Terminology and vocabulary. But you want to do the right thing. 100%, of course we do. And and if I'm really honest, Damon, <clears throat> running a job, uh, sorry, running a business is, is one of the hardest things in the world. I've got so much admiration for people that do. It's hard enough to win business and then keep that client and manage their expectations and exceed them. But when you need a workforce to help you do that, I couldn't give two hoots if they're gay, lesbian, bisexual, as long as they are, and that that's just sexuality, but then also I, I don't care where they were born from, I want the best people to come and work for us to deliver the best service and the best results for our clients. But we get to 26, 27 staff and, and, and now I, I do feel I, I'm very aware of it now than I ever have been before that we don't that everybody that works for us is is a, is white and it's a difficult one and I, and I don't think I'm alone there in terms of um, other small businesses having but similar at least thoughts. Someone's held a mirror up to you and said, "Look at this," and you're aware that it is a challenge and is different mm. and it's something you would have to. But address. some bigger businesses. Um, I mean, I'll name uh, Avon Cosmetics head offices. You know, remember the Avon ladies? Yeah. Avon Cosmetics is head offices in Northampton, and to become a preferred supplier for them, they want to know your the BAME ratio of your directors, shareholders, and employees, and LGBTQ plus. Is there another plus now? G- LB- GTQ plus. Yeah, they want to know the percentage of your shareholders, directors, and employees as well, and that that was. That was a real stickling point. I mean, we, we don't work with Avon in, uh, anymore, although we'd like to if they're listening. Um, but if they're doing it, uh, they're not the only company that's doing it. And therefore, it's, you know, 96% of uh, our economy as a nation is made up of SMEs, small to medium-sized businesses. You know, we, we represent a, hu- a huge part of our economy. And it's just, uh, there there isn't enough support or direction, I think, for smaller businesses to say right this is the way that we should be doing because it's hard enough to recruit good quality people as it is um and that's just a small company in northamptonshire and, and milton Keynes. so yeah it's um it's it's an in, it's an interesting point and and for us it's one that we i certainly don't feel that we've nailed or you know executed so we're going to be learning a lot about that in the coming months <coughs> yeah educating us, ourselves on it and you'd have you'd have notice this throughout your whole career Roman but there'll be people that you've worked with probably like me and Ben that you'd love to work with over and over again (laughs) because you click with them straight away Mm. and then there's other people that you've got to do your job and tick the list to get them to get them out Um, how challenging is it when that person that you're with that you're literally trying to get everything out of them and there's there's an out there it's literally, it's a yes, no answer. It's well, my worst experience of that was uh, David Blaine, the no. yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas this guy sat down and really nothing came from him. And you're on live TV, and what should be a six minute interview seems like 60 minutes, yeah. And uh, and to this day, I don't know if the guy was being deliberately controversial and trying to raise publicity for himself or that he was ill 
And I thought, I thought, is he ill? Has his blood sugars dropped or, or, yeah, or something? Yeah. But there was there was sort of no answer there. And that's when, yeah, I always say in my business, you're not paid for when it goes right. When it goes right, it's easy. You're paid for when it goes, it goes wrong. wrong. That's when you yeah. earn your money. And, uh, and they said that about wrong. they said about that about VAR as well. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. 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 That's, that's an interesting one. Uh, of all the of all the jobs that you've worked on, what what would be the one that's been that you've enjoyed the most? Oh, where easy, easy. Um, National Lottery Jet Set on a Saturday night, which I did for five years. Wow, it was it was. Uh, they should bring that back. On that note, Saturday night telly is not what it used to be. No, it's not. It's not. It's not. But jets, people don't sit down and uh, as a family and uh, yeah. you know to watch things. I mean, I think probably Strictly is one of the few programs that Agreed. hold people together like that. But it also, they wouldn't make a program like Jet Set now because it'd be too expensive. Yeah, because we had to have winners in studio. We had uh, the the current winner was somewhere like Hawaii. Yeah, yeah, and then if you dethroned them, you were then flown to the next location, which was Cape Town, South Africa. Whatever. Some people went on holiday for weeks, didn't they? They exactly. were there for a while. So I think yeah. the, the biggest one we had was something like somebody was eight weeks, I think it was, and they were just going flipping around the world. Yeah, that a great show. That takes you back. Uh, how, honestly, what year was it? how long ago was that? Uh, I would say it's now about uh, 15 12, years? 12 years ago. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. A great show. Because that was one yeah. that you'd have a Chinese. We've, I, I remember that. Uh -huh. with me and Vicky would go around to mum and, mum and dad's and we'd have a Chinese and watch. That's the sort of thing that you'd watch. Yes. Because it'd be an hour. Which tension was an hour. Yeah. 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 All live. Yeah. And, and, that, uh, and you can't beat live TV. Well, that's, that's really why I got the job because lots of people could present. I think they had six or so people um you know lined up to do this one after the other but they couldn't do live tv the thing is anybody can do tv i mean i've been in with shows and like you would not believe people who are household names that can't read an auto cue that can't present and yet they can they can be there for four hours and someone edits it all into a half hour show and they're not funny and they're not talented and they're not anything when you have to do it live that sorts the men out from the boys really and there's very few people who are live operators you know like someone in their prime like noel edmonds yeah would be able to do anything live um but there's very very few people Noel's house party like that they can do that you could honestly i can sit there and i can say say she's very good or he's very good or whatever and you think yeah but that took six hours to record and only you and so, a handful of other people would know that, that, that costs a lot of money you know is there well, on on your sort of rise to becoming a you know broadcasting legend is there one person or, or maybe more than one that that either took you under their wing, gave you that one bit of great advice or that you really looked up to and admired? Only once, only once. And uh, when I was in Belfast, um, I, I was on the sports desk at Ulster Television and there was a very, very good, a guy who had technique and uh, his name was Jackie Fullerton. And um, Jackie, when I came in, you know, as a, as a youngster, Jackie wouldn't speak to me and I sat opposite him and it's like he, he saw me as a threat or a rival and then one day him and I had a set to I, I said to him I didn't go through journalism college to sit here answering your phone all day you know why you, you, you treat me like dirt I sit here you don't give me any work to do whatever 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 and he said really really and I said yes and he said do you think that when people phone ITV in London to speak to Dickie Davis they get through <laughs> and I went no 
And he said, exactly. <laughs> so his point was, why should anybody be able to phone him and him answer the phone? I am the, in, the, uh, the go-between. Yeah, the gatekeeper for that. So, but basically after that, he took me under his wing and he taught me all the things like, you know, don't write. Don't, when you're writing a script, don't write it the way you would read, read it, it in a newspaper. Write the way you would speak. And so few people do that. I write, every time I, I write a script or even read a script, I write, read it or write it in a way that I would speak. Most people don't do that. Yeah, and tiny tips like that about animation and all sorts of things. And Jackie and I are, are friends to this day. He's retired now. And, uh, you know, I was always very, very grateful. Most people are very, very threatened. I've, I'm very good at giving advice to people and, and mentoring people and whatever because I'm not overly threatened by them because I think, well, if you do it to that level, I'll just do it to a higher level. And it, it brings out the best in you. Now, that might be maybe naive um, of me, but TV is not a generous industry. Broadcast is not a generous industry where people want to give you their secrets. They do not want to do that. It's a, <coughs> it's a skill and an art, though, broadcasting, and you've you've certainly yeah. nailed that. It's a skill and an art, but it goes back to what you were just saying about the, the lack of opportunities job-wise for you. All of those years of experience, all of those things that you've yeah. um, learned over the years, you're there to carry on doing that, evolving, but also teach the future how to do it. But you can also you argue that um, uh, nothing's forever and mm, that new yeah. faces are needed and people get fed up looking at the old faces. You've got to give a new generation a, a chance to do things. That's, that's all well and good. That's true. But it is hard to take when you sit and think, but I'm four times better than that person. Why am I not doing that yep. particular program? And I mean, there's big revolutions in terms of how, for instance, sport is presented nowadays. And in, in, in my day, you had um, you had these gods of sport, these anchors, these David Coleman's, these Barry Davises, mm. these uh, Des Lynam's, yeah. um, Dickie Davis, whatever. And they are all the best. They're the best presenters ever on live TV because they have to assimilate live information, scores, results coming in all the time and relay that to people in a very calm way. Um, and now you don't get those sort of presenters. You know, I always thought I would be the next Des Lynam. That's what I wanted to be. And Des was very good at sort of handing me jobs and things like that. <clears throat> but um, they don't have presenters like that anymore. A few years ago, I was fortunate enough to go to the gallery at Sky Sports mm. in Islesworth. <clears throat> and um, Jeff Stelling, who was master, master. Yeah. I mean, he he's probably the, mm. the last of that generation, I yeah. think, from what you probably described. But I must admit, I was a tad... I'm like, this is my naivety... But I was a tad disappointed because I actually got to meet Stato Steve, Sky Sports Steve. Yeah. And he's the guy that will go Aberdeen are 3-0 up and that's Ryan Kirkland's third free kick with his left foot this season. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> you sort of like, it's Jeff had the passion and everything. But in that gallery, you get to see exactly what he's hearing yeah. and yeah. what he can see. And that is a f phenomenal. Well, that's an art. That's an art. Yeah, phenomenal form. art. It is an art form. There are, you know, there are there are certain people that can can still do it and uh, put to the test. I mean, I think Gabby Logan is very good. I think yeah. she she covers a lot of a lot of what goes on there. But um, you know, they they change it. The Steve Riders of this world, the Jim Rosenthal's, they yeah. were all sort of stood stood down, and it's 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 very different. I mean, you just have to accept. There's no point sitting moaning about it all. 
it's like it wasn't like that in my day. It wasn't like that in my day, but um, it is what it is. So um, we're going to come. We come to the end of this episode. Uh huh. Um, but we have got one question yes. that we always like to end with when okay. we get to somebody of your caliber. Um, Saturday night dinner party. Yeah, you got three guests, past or present. Who would they be and why? Well, I did ma- mention Barry Humphreys there. Um, whether he came as Dame Edna or as <laughs> yeah, himself. that would yeah, that would yeah. be that. Um, which absolute. would you prefer? Mm-hmm. Which would you prefer? Oh, Edna. <laughs> ah, do you know what? And was he's very he's very mischievous. I mean, he used to anytime he, he was being interviewed. Say, my wife was sitting beside me on a couch like this, and we were interviewing him, and uh, she'd say, "Barry, lovely to see you." Ruth, it's lovely to see you too. And I was thinking last night in bed, and I thought, you know, I have something that would be perfect for Ruth's slot. <laughs> and then she starts laughing, right? And he and he does that funny face with everyone. No, I thought Ruth will have once her slot filled today. And whatever, whatever. And you know, he right on the edge all the time. Very, very funny. Very funny. Uh, the other guy would be Peter Kay. Yeah. Um, I like Peter Kay very much. Like his whole humor and everything to do with him. And then I think I would like Roger Moore. Uh, Roger Moore. Um, well, amazing. He was my James Bond. I mean, when I when I started, I used to watch Roger Moore on a show on ITV called Ivanhoe, where he was a knight, and then that morphed into the Saint, and then uh, the Persuaders with Tony Curtis, and then uh, James Bond. And I was very, very blessed and lucky that Roger Moore became friendly with me, not the other way around. <laughs> he became friendly with me. And uh, we met in a restaurant one day, and he kept in touch, and it was just amazing. And all of that culminated in that when he died, I was invited to his memorial service. There were 150 people there, which was a, a great tribute. A uh, classy, funny man. I spent many happy days and hours with him doing various things. But a class, class, and a real film star, real film star. He just had class. If he walked into this room now, he was tall. He was debonair. He was. There's an aura about him. But mm. he would control he had the an room. Aura. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Some people have auras, you know, <clears> and some people don't. And you can tell. You know, I'm, I mentioned Bill Clinton earlier. Whether you love him or loathe him, he has an aura when he walks into a room. Yes, doesn't yes. matter if there's ten people in there or fifty. He, yeah. I've never met Clint Eastwood. I would love to have interviewed Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Uh, Is there anybody else other than Clint that you <coughs> really was going like? to be a question that I was going to ask? Was there anybody yeah. that you didn't get the chance? Well, there, there, there are certain public figures that I think I would, I would like to talk to in terms of politics and whatever it is. But um, um, I'm lucky enough. I've, I've done so many. But I think, to me, real stars are on a big screen and they usually are American. They're usually American. Yeah. So I think if by one day you're watching someone on a big screen and then you're talking to them, that's that's an amazing that's an amazing thing. They say, you know, you should never meet your heroes. Mm. Um well thankfully most of my heroes that I've met have been really nice, really, really good. And you know, when I think down through the years, you know, um 
gosh, there's so many, so many film stars, Robin Williams and John Travolta and Pierce Brosnan's another really, really nice man. Um, I've met Sean Connery, Gene Hackman, um, you know, but then footballing heroes as well. I'm know? surprised that Georgie Best wasn't one of your four. Well, yes, that's very true. That's very true. Could be on the reserves list. No, 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 you now you're making me feel bad, actually. Uh, um, George, <clears throat> George, I mean, the amazing thing is to be a child and to watch George conjure mm. with a football. And, you know, Northern Ireland was only famous for troubles. And yet we had a man who was always amongst the top three footballers in the whole world. You know, whether it was Pelly, Beckenbauer, Bobby Moore, whatever, George Best was there in those lists all the time. And then I was phoned one day um, by his family. I, I, I knew him, obviously. And they said, Eamon, George died. And they said, we, we don't want a religious ceremony, but we would like you to conduct the funeral. I thought they were going to invite me to the funeral or whatever, but to actually conduct the funeral. Wow. And I was asked to do that. And um, that was an amazing tribute to be, to be asked to do that. I've never met his son, Callum. Callum, lovely fellow. Oh, well, I was just about to say, um, I, I follow him on social media and I feel the way that he's um, that he, he carries himself now, yeah. he, his dad would be incredibly proud because yeah. I think as he was growing up, he probably didn't. George wasn't always there for him. And, you know, that's a big gap in Callum's life. Mm. He loved his dad, there's no doubt. But as you say, George wasn't always there. But George was the nicest man. There were some people who are not nice and they have drink and they're even nastier. George was a nice man who was ruled by the demon drink, but he basically was a nice guy. I learned to say sorry through George Best. I learned the power of saying sorry or that you're wrong. I, I remember we had a studio set up like this and um, it was an independent program for BBC Two and it was a tribute to him. And I'll cut a very long story short, but basically... George didn't turn up. He did. He was in the building and then they lost him. He, he, he went out the front door and no one ever found him again. That was it. And so a few weeks later, the whole programme had to be stood down. There was a hole in BBC Two schedules. Cost a lot of money because the programme didn't happen. And um, a few weeks later, I met him and he said, Eamon, I just want to say it. And I said, don't say anything. I'm not interested. You know, I've had enough of you. I've had you up to here. Everybody was relying on you and you let us all down. And, you know, and I'm ranting away. And I'm thinking, here's me ranting to George Bass, one of the greatest footballers ever, <laughs> hero, whatever. And I'm ranting away and shouting at him. And he goes, and I'm saying, so I tell you what, don't even bother speaking to me because, da, da, da. and he goes, I'm sorry. And I said, ah, yes, and you may well be, but I'm Eamon, I'm really sorry. And I'm thinking, and I went, right, right, well, well, well. <laughs> because when someone says sorry to mm. you, you have nowhere to go. You have, what more What more can you do? They say sorry. They really are sorry. I mean, he's sorry until he would get drunk again. But a lovely, gentle, gentle man uh, in all forms of the word. And what a genius. What a genius. If you actually ever watch Man United Benfica, the 1968 European Cup final, and you watch him with his socks down around his ankles mm. and what he did and how he conjured that ball and scoring and whatever. Well, uh, just so just on that, because obviously you <clears throat> huge Man United fan. When you look back on the 60s and the 70s, because when I, when I watch, I still can't really appreciate how good they were. Yeah. 
would he be would he be better than Messi and Ronaldo? Do you think, or would he would he be just be in their league? I think different thing. I think that Ronaldo is the ultimate athlete. Messi is the ultimate footballer. Um, George just had genius. Um, was the ultimate genius. Different times, yeah. I mean, Belfast boy. There's a song about him. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so proud of him. So. I mean, I, if you go to my home, I've got paintings of George. Like, I mean, I mean, I don't mean like just prints or anything. I mean, paintings. I mean, he was poetry in motion. And I think there's a lot to be said because he was from Belfast yeah. and we were going through so much and he was the, the light at the end of the tunnel and just very, very special. And I get very emotional sort of thinking about him, talking about him and, and watching him. And... You know, I didn't appreciate when I was watching him and I would have seen him in three or four games, but I didn't know what I was watching. I just knew, I thought everybody played football like this. And that's why I would say to my kids when, you know, they're going to matches and I say, son, if you remember nothing else about this match, remember you saw Eric Cantona play here today. And there's certain players you look at and you, and you think like Ronaldo, you know, you saw him play and and we take it for granted and, and we shouldn't take that sort of genius for granted. It is, it is incredible. Genius, you put, you, you said that's a good word. George Best, genius. And on that note, <clears throat> I think we, we're going to end. Um, you're a genius in your own right, Eamon. <laughs> and um, obviously you've touched on your mobility challenges and I just want to say how, how incredibly grateful we are for you to make the effort to come in and talk to us today. And uh, we look forward to seeing you at the County Cricket Ground in a few weeks' time. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Eamon. 